Welcome to the Sounds of the World. We are your hosts, Hillary and Bill. Together, we're going to travel around the world to discover new music, discuss musical topics, and interview fascinating people. Our world is a buffet of music, and it is time to eat. All right, welcome back to Sounds of the World. Uh, today we have a very special guest uh, making his way from St. Charles, Missouri. Uh, he now finds himself in Nara, Japan. Um, while in elementary school, he started his musical journey on the viola, which he picked up and forgot time to time, as we all do. Uh, his genre jumped for five years through blues, R&B, jazz, heavy metal, until he finally reconnected with the viola at 14. With his newfound love of classical music, inspired him to become com- to begin composing. His music would soon be performed quite widely, even making its way to Europe. At 18, when he entered into music school, he was injured and was unable to continue playing viola as a professional, unfortunately, and stuck to composition. On his travels through Asia, he ran into an instrument called the shakuhachi. Falling in love with the sounds of the shakuhachi and remembering the clips from his childhood favorite samurai films and animes. The passion of shakuhachi would only grow, and from here and years later, he became a shihan, or a master, of the shakuhachi under the tutelage of Michael Jacuzin Gould. He recently also received the distinct honor of becoming an OSS Tai Shogun, which was given to him for his promotion of the shakuhachi and its music around the world by Ronald Watt, the ninth Don Shotokan Karate, and Order of the Rising Sun, which is Japan's top civilian award. He also holds a degree in composition from the prestigious Cleveland Institute of Music under Dr. Keith Fitch and Professor Stephen Cohn. He is now based in Nara, Japan, and continues his studies of Japanese arts with Shodo and Shomyo while teaching and performing shakuhachi occasionally, writing music as well. So please welcome to our wonderful podcast, Sean Head. Thank you. Woohoo! Thank you so much. I really appreciate being here. Uh, it's always a pleasure to talk to both of you. Yeah. Yes, we're excited to have you. <laughs> yes, definitely. It, it is so good to see you again. Uh, it's a, I know our, our listeners won't be able to see that, but that's a beautiful panel you have behind you. Oh, yeah. So behind me, this is actually called a biobu, which is a type of folding screen. And this uh, particular one was actually given to us. Uh, well, it's um, it was our grandfather's and it just had uh, made its way down. And it actually might have been our great grandfather's. It's quite old. Um, and it's actually the, the image of it for, I'll paint the picture for all the listeners. <laughs> Silky Love it. Um, the, the top mountain here is actually Mount Fuji. And then everything, all the golden clouds here, it's kind of like the, this idea of Yugen, this kind of mysterious impenetrability of, 
of, of like the mysteries of life. Uh, so it's very kind of beautiful in, in that sense. And then at the bottom, there's some sort of profession, uh, processional happening. Like it looks like the, uh, uh, somebody of, of great political power is going from one location to the other. Um, and it looks as if this uh, particular view of Mount Fuji is actually from Shizuoka, Japan. So uh, not close to me whatsoever, but beautiful nonetheless. <laughs> wow, that is stunning. Holy cow. Yeah. Makes it, a really good Zoom background when you have uh, meetings. Yes. <laughs> people, people, like my students, they real they really feel like they've transported in Japan when they have this biobu behind them. <laughs> So, I mean, it's much classier than the view of my kitchen and the wine glasses behind me. <laughs> well, mine is the classy alcohol. We have to remember. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and mine's just a, a messy office. So. <laughs> the signs of intellect. That's right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Um, so it's great to see you and, uh, that, uh, so let's just start. We did a little bit about your, your background. Uh, studying viola. So maybe you could tell us a little bit like, do you come from a musical family? Uh, are you kind of the odd one out? Um, I think everybody in my family dabbled in music, but it was more on like the pop side. Um, my mom was actually a rock musician in the seventies and, uh, she, she was in a touring cover band and, you know, she, she actually was played on the radio and that was like a big deal back in the seventies. Like nowadays you go, Oh, I'm on the radio and they go, yeah, big whoop. What are you <laughs> in the seventies on the radio, you're like, you came out of the talking box. Right. Uh, and, um, my, all of my, my brothers and sisters, they all, uh, learned music in some form or another. Like they all did band or orchestra. Um, but a lot of them outside of that, um, were in like rock bands. They played guitar, um, or and one of my other brothers plays, uh, bass and drums. And then my, my sister, my sister just did violin, but she was actually more on the art, uh, the, the drawing side, the artistic side of, um, you know, visual arts. Uh, so not necessarily, I wouldn't say a professional artistic family, but everybody had their hand involved in some sort of artistic medium to quite a high level. And I say that because my sister actually did get a full ride for art school, though she didn't go. And so did my brother. He, he also was a brilliant artist, uh, could have had wow. you know full rides anywhere he wanted to go it was he's very talented wow that's that's cool. amazing yeah <laughs> yeah and at the, but at the same time too like you know you would never know it if you sat down with my family like it, i was actually down um there i think like eight or nine months ago before i moved to japan or no farther back than that, i think it's 10 months ago and uh we are sitting there with my sister and all of my brothers were there or most of them were there and they were all talking about cars and like, it's basically like a full, like another language of like how they like engine works. And it's like, oh my God, my family is so redneck. Like it is. <laughs> <laughs> redneck and, hey, it's handy. I feel like I took. I just, no, they're like, it's, <laughs> it's so funny though. Like you'll have like, we'll just be like messing around with my brother and you'll think that he's like, he's dumb because like, because of like how, like, like the, the one, the accent, because it has a bad stereotype with it. But two also is like. <laughs> It's just like the topics of that we talk about. It's like beer and beer and barbecue. But then <laughs> all you have to do is just mention something, something about a car. And now he becomes MIT engineer. Uh. <laughs> it's, I mean, all of my brothers have built their own cars, like 1960, wow. 1969, like, uh, chargers. Oh, They've wow. done it. They've built it. And they're, okay. they're, they're beautiful. So like they're, they all have like, brilliance in their own right it's it's really cool i just don't fit in that, in that 
Uh, I, I understand that. Uh, yeah. My, I have a cousin that's a stand up comedian and everyone on that side is just like deadpan, very dry sense of humor. And I like, mm-hmm. they start talking. Well, they're either a stand up comedian or a lawyer. So it's like, <laughs> I don't know how to fit into any of this. You know, are you telling me the truth or? Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> just <laughs> you're paid liars. That's fine. It's okay. <laughs> so yeah the families at, they all are very supportive of arts and uh actually a lot of my family really um has an affinity for japanese culture as well so that was always supported in some way or another like if i would say i'm interested in this they'd go oh yeah i know about that that's really cool stuff mm. no, i think that helps to have that like mutual interest so it's not just like you're holed up in your room as a kid going like, shut up, mom. I think it's cool. Like it's, it's nice to be able to like explore those things with your family members and like, you know, I feel like it gives you that confidence to like really dive in and kind of explore what else is out there without having to like rebel and do it yourself. And yeah. And I don't think there was ever really a, I, I never really had to, um, rebel in that sense, but I did have to leave home in a sense. Like, uh, so. Yeah. Like my mom would support and say like, okay, if you want to do martial arts, go for it. If you want to learn music, okay, go for it. If you want to do this, you know, go for it. Mm-hmm. But my career as itself did not have anything to do with, uh, with like my training as it's like, well, I mean, it does, but it, it's so different from where I went, you know, classical music training. My first departure from home is leaving what I know the best. It's what mm-hmm. I, you know, I spent years in college. I spent years of taking private viola lessons and composition lessons. And then I left and I started doing shakuhachi. Mm-hmm. And then my second leave from home is leaving from America and coming to Japan. And, you know, I don't have family in Japan. I don't, well, I do now because I'm, I'm married, but I mean, but prior <laughs> to, I mean, I didn't yeah. have, like, I wasn't like, oh, I'm going to go see, you know, my, my brother, you know, uh, Taka, you know, he lives in, he lives in Tokyo and we're go back. We was, we were sharing the cradle at three years old, you know, none of right. that sort of stuff whatsoever. Um, and that's, I think that for me, it's, there's a huge like risk take in it, but that's like part of like that passion drove me so much to just like, just go for it. If you don't risk it now, you will, like, you will die an old man and you will be regretful. You will say, why didn't I just do it? Why didn't I just go for it? And what was really nice about it, my mom was terrified. She was like, Oh my God, you're leaving Japan. Why don't you love me? Yeah. <laughs> but my sister was like, dude, that's so cool. You got to do it. You got to do it. <laughs> before you know it, you're going to hook up with some girl before you know, you're going to have like 20 kids and you're not going to be able to do anything with your life. You'll have nothing. And it's like that went from zero to 60 so fast. Yeah. Right? Realization. But, but she's, right. she's right though, because Things do like when life, like when life, big life events happen, they just, they happen, but like right before your eyes and you don't even realize that it just happened. So like the, this move to Japan, huge life thing, but it almost like, it's like almost like a, it wasn't even that big. It's a huge thing, but didn't feel that big. Mm-hmm. And that's how a lot of life events are. Like you build up this excitement of like, oh my God, this is like the biggest thing I'm ever doing in my life. I think people get this way with uh, children too, when they have kids, there's they're so terrified of having a child and then they have a child and they're like, Oh my God, this is the best thing ever. Right. And then that, that moment of scared and not, and like, you know, whatever, like, Oh my God, everything in my life is going to be awful because I'm having a child that they forget <laughs> about that. And then it becomes even better. And I think that's what's kind of happened for me in both cases 
first first time leaving from classical music and, and wanting to do shakuhachi as a career, and then second time leaving America to come to Japan to continue this, the, all the studies that I wanted to do. Yeah, well, that's amazing. I feel like you're you know you're on the right track when it it has that outcome, and you're like, okay, I just took the biggest leap of faith. And either like, I feel like if you absolutely hate it, okay, like alarms should be going off, but absolutely loving it is also like different alarms, but like that signal that like, okay, you know what, actually, I think I can do this. I'm on the right path. And and I think what we have all had mistakes where, where, um, you know, like we said, I mean, I, maybe I shouldn't have done that. Maybe I should have gone a different route. Maybe I should have done something else. And, but that's part of risk taking. Like I've done lots of things where I go like, you know what? I shouldn't have done that. I like, that's not my forte. I, sh- I should like completely just ignore that part of whatever for right now, because I, you know, not right choice. Do this instead. Mm-hmm. But that, that miss is actually just as valuable as having like this great success because right. knowing what you don't want is just as valuable as knowing what you want. Absolutely. Especially with music, because it's such a diverse open playing field. And I feel like at least myself personally, like when I first, you know, got into classical music, I was like, holy crap, I don't know Jack about anything because there's so much to know. And like, I mean, it was so, I was so thankful. I remember when I went to grad school, I was like, okay, I feel like I've narrowed it down on a map to the city. And now I feel like I'm on the street of where I want to be. And that was such a liberating feeling of like, okay, I'm not just constantly asking Oh, what do we want to do? Like, I know I don't want to do this. No, I don't want to do this. I think I want to do this. And now I'm going to figure out if it's a yes or no. So kudos to you for for finding that. That's amazing. It's just, it's just the start. I'm a, I'm still a young lad. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The people who just like feel like, okay, this is what I have to do. I'm going to do it. I'm going to follow this are, are always so inspiring to me because, uh, it's always like, oh, that takes some real cojones, you know, it takes some real guts to go out and do that and just follow that passion. It's awesome. You know, but it also, it helps a lot when you don't have anything to lose. Like the only thing that I own in America was a car. Right. right? I don't have a mortgage. I didn't have, uh, you know, I didn't have kids. I didn't have like family that I, you know, had to take care of or anything like that. So I had that freedom, but some people, you know, where, then so this is what makes me go on to the next point. Like think of families that come to America, like full families where they move up there, they uproot their entire life and come here. Like that right. sort of risk is like, is huge. So I think it does take a, a, a definitely, it takes a lot of courage to say, I'm going to go and live in a foreign country where, and also I'm going to live out in the middle of nowhere where I'm definitely the only white person where at least a good, <laughs> like probably 150 kilometers in any given direction. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I can yeah. identify with the, the not like the no strings attached. Um, before, right before I decided to go to grad school, it was like my siblings were getting like all, I have three older siblings and it was like, I think my brother was getting married. My sister was having a kid. Like two of my sisters were pregnant. And I was like, I have to go to grad school. I have to move to England. Like, I have to get the hell out of here. Cause I don't have any strings tying me down. And, their response was, yeah, you got to go <laughs> because it's going to be you one day. So you need to get the hell out of here. <laughs> but it was, I was so thankful to have like that, that close to home, that, that message of like, yeah, you've got to do this right now while you still can. And when- yeah, I would say too, to go on to, to, you have the, your brother and sisters who are already having that family. So mm-hmm. moms like, uh, yeah, uh, like biologically <laughs> of going like, 
I want grandbabies. It doesn't just fall onto you. You have other family members that are covering that. Now, if you were the only child, I think it would be a much different conversation. Oh, yeah, it right? would. Because it would be, um, what are you doing? You need to settle down. <laughs> so then it becomes even harder to to make those make those moves and make those choices as well. So yeah, absolutely. I know I had a very low pressure. Youngest of four. Uh, everyone has their stuff together. It took me a while, yeah. but that was great. <laughs> and I'm the youngest of seven. And so I, wow. my mom already been <laughs> through. <laughs> I think my mom raised me on autopilot. <laughs> like there was nothing I could do that would actually even shock her. It's it's actually we're one of the I think I would watch my other friends' parents get mad about something. Like, all right, you graffitied on the school. Like every other parent would just get enraged and they'd like throw stuff. My mom would just go <sighs> just like she just knew it was like very disappointed. Just again, I just getting sick of it. <laughs> And I think that it's because my brothers just took it out of her. Like it, there, there's nothing I could never match to the level of, of uh, four boys running around a house. Does it mean oh my. himself? No, I'm, I was nothing. It's a, it, your, your, your bad actions are inconsequential to the four boys I had pri- previous to you. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, I have uh, three kids at home right now and, uh, it, I only have one boy, but when they all gang up on you, you're just like, oh my god. <laughs> the youngest, I'm just like, what you want to do? What? That's yeah. Just I need some peace. <laughs> I want to jump off the house. Okay, guy, just don't kill yourself. So. Yeah. You were going to land on. <laughs> Wear a helmet. Yeah. Water. <laughs> yeah. Oh wow! So youngest of seven. Started viola and then you suffered an injury, right? Yeah, and that was a building up injury of uh, basically um, cartilage deficiency in the lower back, like basically lots of mm. spinal pressure in, in the lower back. Uh, I think that also had to do with a lot of like the martial arts and like weight training and stuff like that. A culmination of all of these things, you know, at the same time. And really, where it happened is when I first walked into college and I. Um, I wanted to be a part of everything and I wanted to, I wanted to be in the orchestra. I wanted to be in a chamber group. I wanted to do the new music. I wanted to do my solo stuff, of course. And then I wanted to play my own music and I wanted to get my own concerts and I wanted to do the opera. So mm. I had all these things. That's, like, that? no. <laughs> That's it. That's, That's it. just a Tuesday, right? <laughs> all you had time for. Um, but I wanted to do everything and that playing every single, like playing every single day for hours on end and then going home to practice. Like my, my schedule, my first year of college was insane. I woke up at 5 a.m. and my, cause I still lived at home and my mom would drive me down to the school. I'd get there at 6 a.m. to do my first warm up and practice. First class was at, uh, seven o'clock. Mm. And then from seven to 12 were all of my, were all my first courses cause I had 23 credits. Then I did oh, a lunch break and then I did, uh, my orchestra and chamber music. And then I had another set of classes from four to, uh, to 8 PM. And then from 8 PM, my mom would pick me up. We'd go back home and then I'd practice until about three in the morning. Holy wow. Some, because I had to, I just, like, yeah. I had so much music and it wasn't even that like, and, and part of the problem was, is that I didn't really know how to practice properly. Mm-hmm. And so like, I would feel like I'd have to do more to get more, to get more work done. But it's actually, I needed to focus on the parts that I actually couldn't play. 
but I had this like feeling like I need to play every single note in this piece before I show up to my first rehearsal. I remember feeling that way till about, I think I learned that lesson my junior year and it was like, oh, practice smarter, not harder. <laughs> but that's, it's all really, that's a really important lesson that a lot of musicians learn or it's not ingrained into you or you don't enter college with that knowledge. You're just having to figure it out basically through burnout for the most part yeah. that, okay, I can practice in other ways, but so, yeah. But that, it just messed me up hard. And then um, I also wasn't really that happy with the first college that I went to. Uh, I just didn't feel like it was a good fit. And uh, I remember sitting with like my advisor, who was the head of music theory at the school. And he was just like, this school doesn't fit you. Let's mm. find something that works better for you. Uh, that's really good. And so, yeah, he was very, very helpful. And my, also my composition teacher the same way. And, and the viola professor, too. They all wanted me to to go to a conservatory. They said that that's just like your, your level of, of it's, it's not like, um, it's just like my, my own intensity of like, I gotta go, I gotta go, I gotta go and gotta do this thing. I want to do this thing. Um, and like that pressure to do things at the highest level possible fits mm-hmm. more of that conservatory, uh, background where the school I was at was more for music education. So the force, the, mm-hmm. everybody's energy was like, how can I become the best teacher, not become mm-hmm. the best player? So we had, we weren't, we weren't synced up that way. Mm-hmm. Well, it's important too. that I feel like that was the university of Montana. I did composition there, but it was primarily an ed school. And I mean, it's a great, fantastic education program, but, and they, they do their best with performance, but it's not like, where you go to become like the best of the best performance wise. It's okay. You go study here so that you can move to the next school to, to hit that next level. And, and it's not to say that it's the faculty's fault. It's the, Mm. it's the, the energy that's around the school. And I I was explaining that to, um, because I used to teach violin and viola and I, I always encouraged my students to go and join the youth orchestra where they could be around kids who are really passionate about music Mm -hmm. and, Every single time, 100% of the time when the students get in there, they they do one of two things. One, this is not for me. Or two, this is like, this is exactly what I wanted. And their level just skyrockets mm. because they're finally around kids who, well, they care a lot more. Right. Yeah. It's the oh, seventh grade band with the kids that don't want to be there, but they felt like they had to pick an elective. <laughs> exactly. But they can't sing like me. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I went to a small school. I had those classes. <laughs> so that was basically how that started with uh, the viola situation, um, you know, having the energy, but just that feeling of I needed to do that much to, to get further. Yeah. Um, and then so I I just decided to do the, the comp, go the composition route. And uh, that's when I, I switched over and went to the Cleveland Institute of Music. And it was a really good there was a lot of really great things and a lot of really bad things about the the school from my experience, which I think is the same for everybody. Right. You know, nothing, no place is perfect because it's full of people and people are the furthest thing from being perfect. <laughs> oh, That's yeah. a universal experience. Yeah, a universal <laughs> experience. Everybody has it. Um, so from there, from the uh, doing the composition with the at the Cleveland Institute of Music, um, I I had extra scholarship money left over from like that are supposed to be like for buying books and stuff. And that's where I did it. I decided I was going to go to, uh, to over to Asia and travel instead. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Love it. Put that money to work. <laughs> yeah, put the money to work. And I knew I could just copy from somebody else's textbook anyway. So. Right. <laughs> right. You can find them online exactly. too. So. Yeah. Why did I buy all of these? I was so adamant about buying textbooks. I'm like, 
I will just give completely different advice to people that go to college. <laughs> illegal Russian revs, websites, illegal Chinese websites. You can get your downloads there. Ask your friend. <laughs> Ask your friend. There, you know, somebody will help you. you get buy you. <laughs> yeah, like, I'll buy you. I'll buy you a beer. Let me scan your book. Um, so I traveled through Asia, and that's when I I I heard the shakachi for the first time in person, and just from some old guy playing it on the side of the street, and that's I just couldn't I couldn't get over like that. That was the sound that I had heard from like my childhood. It's like that's it. It's like that's the instrument I want to learn. I want to I want to take that sound, that universe, and that that spirit of shakuhachi and put it into my music. Yeah. That's so powerful. Holy cow. Like, especially it's amazing what, like a, what tiny little experiences will stick with you and define kind of the rest of your life. So yeah. Amazing. Absolutely. And that's what I'm also noticing here in Japan too. It's like, while, while being here, um, the last thing I want to do like I, I think the first question that people ask is like, oh, so who are you going to study with? Like, who, who's right. who's teaching? Like, you're you're like you're like living living this professional life. You've been traveling all over the place and perform. Who are you going to study with? And like a shoto teacher. They're like, what? Why are you going to do calligraphy out of all things? Like, aren't you going to do strakahachi? It's like, well, I could I could go out and try to find that person and search for for hours and whatever. But Japanese arts are so interconnected. Mm-hmm. So studying studying the shoto, studying this calligraphy. I'm actually like learning like, oh, so when I'm playing shakuhachi, that thing that I do that I don't know why I do it is this. And they have oh, a word wow. for it in calligraphy. Oh, and I then, love that. And learning shomyo, which is the, the Buddhist liturgical chant is, uh, or like songs, is that actually they're so inter, like, interconnected. The melodies of shakuhachi and the melodies of shomyo are just like this. They just like go, blend together. It's like, it's literally the same music. And so I'm making shakuhachi. Like I want to, I've always wanted to sound like the voice. And now I'm actually like singing the music that maybe had inspired the music of shakuhachi as well. Wow. Amazing. Holy cow. Yeah. I, I love the, I love when arts, the other arts interact with music and make like one big culmination of events. You know, we, we talked to uh, one of my old professors, Dr. Mara Gibson. And she loves using art as not just like inspiration, but composing as if there was art involved. And, uh, mm. you know, just hearing what you're saying about the Shodo is just, I can see like the calligraphy and how that would then be reflected within the per- performance of the instrument. You know, we don't, I, I feel like we don't always get that when we get to our, like our, our, our Western notation systems. You know, there's a lot of things that are, are missed or not. There's maybe, uh, you know, you have both sides. So there's things that are missed because we don't have the kind of tools to, to show that. But then there's things that aren't open enough for them to be able to perform uh, and really improvise and make it personal. Yeah. Well, also the, the Japanese music is written in, a, uh, in, calli- in calligraphy. And so it has oh, shapes too. So like the music uh, looks like this. And so oh wow! You see the lines and the shapes are like there's like movements like uh, the shape. Oh my and that, god, that's beautiful! It reflects the, the the movement of the head. Um, so it's it really fits like both visually that way, but um, my my um, a calligraphy teacher often talks about like how that the a line of uh, just a single line of in calligraphy is not 
you're not painting it. You're actually breathing it. And she talks about that all the time. Like it's the breath. You're just painting with your breath. So it's like all those things, how you control your breath in, in Shodo, in calligraphy is the exact same thing with Shakuhachi. So as I, I'm sitting there kind of clumsily, like working on lines and, and painting a line. And I remember it's like, okay, just imagine you're playing Shakuhachi. And it's like, ah, that was a really good line. And then I try to do the next one. I forget that because I get so excited. I was <laughs> <laughs> just going on in the brain. <laughs> so, but yeah, it's just that development of the breath. And it's a nice, it's a really nice reminder to go right back to the square one and then realize what all it's, it's like basically I'm just really discovering all the things I'm doing about Shakuhachi that are right and what are good and what's why, why some things are really successful and why some things aren't. And then from there, I'm actually learning so much more about Shakachi from other arts. Right, right. Yeah, this, yeah, it kind of, uh, for a moment there, I thought of Soul, the new movie. And like you get into that zone and all of a sudden things just are really smooth and flowing like you're wanting them to, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, I feel like when you can really, I love that they talk about the mind-body connection because I feel mm-hmm. like so much of, of or at least my experience with Western music was this huge disconnect between, okay, like you need to do these rigid moves, you know, you're, you're, it's so technical. Or for me, I, you know, I thought of it from this technical perspective and I never quite considered like, how, what are my hips doing as I'm playing the flute? Or like, how, how am I like posturing my shoulders when I'm playing the piano? I remember just being so like hell bent and driven and focused trying to learn the piano that like by the end of it, my shoulders are by my ears and I'm like, did I do it right? Like, and you're just, <laughs> You're not like allowing yourself to be like present or in the in the moment, and I I really feel like that's something that we could all benefit from is develop developing that mind body connection and being very thoughtful with our movements. I think my senior year at the University of Montana, I did have a piano professor, um, Dr. Hesla, was very good about. He taught us how to like breathe while playing the piano, and it was like it sounds so silly to say that out loud, but it was like breath became everything for me. And once I learned that, I was like, oh my gosh, I can like. I can get through this passage by like remembering to breathe here. And like, I don't know, it's just, it's so fascinating that you can have this interdisciplinary focus and benefit so much more than if you just focused on music or just focused on calligraphy. Wow. <laughs> I would, and, and don't get me wrong. And like with all my students, they, and they, they know like very well that I am like a huge stickler about pitch, about poise and how we keep ourselves when we play. Like, um, they all, they all know I like to talk about elbow height and, you know, where the elbows go and stuff like that and how to, how to direct your energy. But the, the point of this posture, the point of, and I don't even like the word posture. And I also don't like the word embouchure either. Um, mm-hmm. I, I like the word aperture instead because this idea, mm-hmm. of, um, where we think of embouchure, the first thing people think of is closing. Mm-hmm. And closing takes a, as a, as a, as a positive force on your jaw, which then help, which makes you become more, um, stiff. But if you say aperture, aperture is opening. And even the sound aperture, and you have to open the mouth to do it. And it allows the, it's allowing the light to go into the lens. So you're allowing the air to go out. And that actually helps to keep the, the jaw and the face more relaxed and to give you more of a bigger, rounder and warmer sound. Um, but with all those things in mind, like that sets you up in order to use that your, your energy. And like what I, um, what my sholdo teacher would say would be, you have to take, the, the energy, that's, that's the universe. And you feed that into your body. Don't think. Allow it to move. You move with the brush. 
then oh, but love it. if those poise, if the poise and if those things are out there, and it sounds like all like hooky and whatever, but no, I think it's like get in the way. It was, it's like so much of us get in the way. Like we, we're trying to make a good note, right? But the bamboo already knows how to make a, a good, a good note. Just move with the bamboo. Don't fight it. Mm-hmm. Don't try to make it. Just do it with it. The brush already, the brush is designed to make a beautiful stroke. Don't try to make the brush make the stroke. Just move with the brush. Mm. And, and for some people, they'll say, that's stupid. Just learn the technique. And like, yeah, that's, that's fair. You, you can totally have that feeling as well. But in my, in my experience and from my estimation, people that tend to do it where they try to control everything are very stiff. And mm-hmm. they, those things tend to lack, like in musicians, it lacks tone and musicality. And in calligraphy, it, 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 um, it relaxed or it, it uh, lacks soul. Mm. Oh, love that. I'm just, and I'm a, just a beginner with calligraphy. I don't know anything about that in terms of the thing. I only know what I've been told. But, and for me, from just what, like, even just like seeing the difference in my own stroke from like, just going from this way of like, okay, I made the brush do this. Okay. Now I may, I'm going to move with the brush. The, com- the difference is amazing. But I'll tell you the most amazing difference about it is actually not what happens on the paper but actually what happens in the brush. When I control the brush, the br- and I lift the brush up, it actually has this huge like swirl and it's out of shape. Mm-hmm. When I move with the brush, the brush moves back to its original shape, which is this, this kind of straight, the, the straight, ready ready to make the, the next stroke. Where in the, in the previous version, I have to fix the brush because yeah. I messed with it, I messed it up. And, and I think it's the same thing with the, the instrument too. You know, you try to force the instrument and before you know it, the instrument's turned into a bad angle or your, your shoulders are up because you're trying to make that thing do it rather than work with it. No, oh, absolutely. Mm. Wow, that's, that is a beautiful metaphor. I really love that. Uh, reminds me of a lot when I was singing, when I studied voice, I remember I was trying to learn, I had um, jaw tension and neck tension and I was trying to force the sound out. And I remember like, as I developed my upper range, my teacher was like, all right, I'm just going to do a mind trick. And as you're going up the scale, I'm going to have you like bend your knees. And it was like, just this like shift in my focus was allowed me to just let the energy come out and let myself like belt the high, high notes that I was terrified of that I couldn't squeeze and control out a minute ago. And I remember like something similar. He was like, squatting doesn't make you sing higher. Like there's nothing like like the physics is not on your side, but it's you just change your energy and your thought of that. And what do you yeah. think of that? It's like, oh shoot, <laughs> like what? I <laughs> know it's so low. I feel like I can get. I, I feel I can hit that C now. Yeah, like yeah. whatever. I got this. <laughs> but wow, the, the metaphor with the brush, man. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna remember that. That's powerful. Yeah good one i like that i I've, I've been really enjoying the time with it even though like most of my most of the time i spend is just drawing a single line and just you know because again beginner stages like really basic characters really basic lines and like i know more complicated characters and then basically the, the, the teacher's reaction is that's cool <laughs> good for you that's good. really it actually you know what it reminds me of it's like a lot of the students who i when i was teaching violin especially um i would ask them to play g major scale in our first lesson basically just be g major scale and they'd be lucky if it was three octaves and they're like you know i i could play saint songs and i can play this concerto I'm like that's really great but there's a lot of problems here 
And right. <laughs> like, that's really what I'm doing right now is I'm just playing my scales on the brush and, and I just going back to that and uh, drawing the connections has been really valuable. Yeah. So for those who might not know, um, what is the shakuhachi flute? Oh, you know, that's right. That probably just started with that. <laughs> no, that's fine. It's fine. <laughs> so the shakuhachi flute, it's a, it's a bamboo, um, flute and it, uh, it's made of madake bamboo, which is indigenous to Japan. And what they do is the, so the bamboo is outside growing, um, you know, vertically and they go to the bottom of the flute where actually some of the, the, the bamboo is still in the ground and they dig uh, a hole around it and they cut from um, underneath the bamboo where all the roots are. Wow. They pull pull that out and then they shave off the ends of the flute and they kind of create this really nice uh, root end uh, part of the flute. It's really, it's really beautiful. Um, And then after that, they bore out the instrument and then they put in five holes and that's it. There's a, then of course there's the, the, the top um, blowing edge, but real, real, it's very, very simple. It's a very crude instrument where it's just basically a stick with five holes. I love that the the root end gives it a natural bell shape. Like you're not having to to manipulate it at all. It's it's natural. That that weight actually allows for a lot of different timbral changes too. Uh, um, You know, for flute players, they they're always talking about their head joints. I remember I joined a flute group and they say like, "Well, I'm using rose gold, and I actually put a weight here and changes my sound." (laughs) Takashi is the same way with that that bell, like the the thickness of the the bamboo, the 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 weight of it. Like, you know, this is this this bamboo compared to the bamboo that's in here um, is like almost double in weight, and the sound is actually you know, very different as well um, for it. And so pulling out another flute to show you guys here. This is um this is one that's actually smoked bamboo. It's like over about three hundred years old. Wow. Um, from when I went to the shop to buy the bamboo, um, I was asking the, 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 this place that only has bamboo. And so I asked them, how old is this bamboo? Would you say? They said 200 to 300 based on the coloration of it, of how, like, how dark that color becomes. Um, and so, but this, what's interesting about this bamboo is though it's the same thickness as the, as the, uh, the previous piece of bamboo that I showed you, the weight is different. And that, that's the density of it. And that density really changes how the sound is on, on the instrument. Um, also, one has this uh, lacquered coating on the inside uh, of the bamboo, and the other one does not. So uh, that's another thing about these instruments is that inside they put these, um, they, it's either red, brown, or uh, black lacquer on the inside, basically to control um, the like uh, development of mold and stuff like that. Mm. Underneath this lacquer, sometimes what they put is uh, something called ji, which is a mixture of urushi, Japanese lacquer, which is also a, a varietal of poison oak. So if you play on a flute that's not quite dry, you will have a very nice reaction. <laughs> I've had it before. I actually had it recently, and it's it's just now healed up before I got on camera with you guys. Like as of oh, yesterday, no. it, was, it was still a little red. But yeah, oh, it's, like, it's like a poison oak breakout. It's and some people. <laughs> Super, super allergic to it. And it makes you wonder why that plant? Who right. would like call that plant and go, you know what? That plant's going to make a really beautiful lacquer one day. Yeah. <laughs> and so that, so they mix that Udushi lacquer, the, the cement paste and water. And that it's this really, really hard substance that goes in the inside for spot tuning. 
or to, uh, to or to make the flute louder. And so that's a more of a modern invention or a modern change for the shakuhachi um, versus its older counterpart, which does not have that G pace on the inside. Um, and so it gives it a little bit more of a natural sound. Um, the flavor is lighter, but there's more core in the bottom of the of the instrument. There's more of that bass where you can find it, but the, the it still has a lightness. It's kind of a very, it's very interesting. But in person, when you hear um, like a, a giotti flute with the G on the inside and a G nashi, a G without, or uh, a flute without the G, side by side by the same maker, you go, oh yeah, that's it. Okay, I, I got it, yeah. It's hard to put to words, but I know what you're talking about now. Hmm. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it's 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 really cool. I mean, it reminds me um, in Slovakia they have what the fuhara, which is just like one long piece of wood. I love that instrument. Oh yeah, yeah. We so we interviewed a uh, Veronica. Uh, oh, her name just went right out of my head. But she played the fuhara, and it's just so cool. The overtones and there's only like just a few holes, and it's just this bored out yes. long timber. You know, and am I right to say that that was actually an instrument for hurting uh, animals? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So they, yeah. she was telling us that like they herded animals, and then the shepherds would also speak to each other over the mountains with it. Yeah, that's like that's so cool. Like, yeah, there's there's a little bit of that um, where they they would say that like historically speaking, the that people would use like the the monks of this instrument they would use the melodies to talk to each other. Mm. Oh. Um, and so they have pieces like they're called it like uh like yobitake and something else uh uratake I think is the name of it I'm probably getting the name wrong but basically it means like call and response so it's it's cool oh. that that's like the same thing and there's a lot actually there's another piece called um shikunotone which is called the deer and it's actually a duet for two shakuhachi players and it's an old piece we don't know how old it is we just know that it was uh you know who we know who basically wrote it down and started teaching it in terms of a school um, sort of way. But it's this idea of like that, like there's two deers that uh, a male and a female deer that are coming like together, closer and closer and closer and closer until they're like matched together. And then uh, like camera pans upwards and you see the back, the background of the, in like the mountains and the forest and stuff like that. So it's, it's kind of interesting how um, instru- like uh, especially instruments outside of our, the Western canon, classical canon, have multiple uses outside of just entertainment. Right. Yeah, like almost necessity of like, hey, we got to figure out a way to get the this herd back. <laughs> and I need to know who's over that ridge and if they're safe or... Ah, that's so cool just to, to have yeah. that title. I, I hate to go off topic. I hate it, but I it's just too interesting about the <laughs> <laughs> Have you heard about the whistle language? No. I have heard about that. Okay, yeah. So there's these a group of people, and I don't remember where it is. So I I can't. All I know is that they whistle like from far distances, and they're able to actually communicate like full long sentences what? of information to each other based on whistles. That's amazing. I feel like this sounds familiar, but also like I'm going what? <laughs> but yeah, it, there's just such cool stuff like that, and um, yeah, yeah, I remember chatting with um i think it was like my final year at u of m we had this like computer music class and we were talking about music as like a source of information and our teacher was like okay like how you know think about that in your life and i was like 
it's everywhere. It was like, it's always, it's like, even like when you're boiling water, like you're, you're, you're getting water out of your tap. You can hear when it's cold and you can hear when it's hot. And I was like, there's just these little auditory cues that are all, all over our lives that we don't even realize that it's amazing when you can kind of like pick up and amplify that with either an instrument or I don't know. There's a, uh, a really strange film called, uh, Tsukiyaki and Chips. And uh, there's a long section in it about um, my teacher's teacher's teacher, Watazumi Doso Roshi. And he, in there, like, he talks about how everything around us is music. And he talks specifically about how Tsukiyaki is, the sound of Tsukiyaki boiling is music. Like that's yeah. because it, what, what music does is that it creates an emotional response. Mm-hmm. So by hearing the sound of boiling of Tsukiyaki, there's an excitement that, that you get because you're like excited to eat and then you get and all, things, right? Like and that's, <laughs> that's part of like the thing of you're communicating something, mm-hmm. right? To, to another person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very true. Just the little auditory cues. I'm trying to remember. I had a couple other ones that I, I don't quite remember, but see like even like listening for your toast, like you're just like, okay, it's done. Like, well, I mean, even think about like automobiles to go back to what you were talking about with your brothers. You know, I'm sure they would be more than happy to tell you about how if you listen carefully with the engine, you'll hear a change in pitch and you know, oh, okay, so that's actually the piston or that's the the crankshaft rather than an oil change or something else, you know? Like, Lost me. I feel like I'm <laughs> <laughs> no, that's me. I'm like, this is why I take it to Toyota. For I, I, I know exactly <laughs> what you mean. And, um, you know, the... the you know, like, so it's actually the, the, you know, they, they use the word, the purr of the engine, you know, like, yeah, yeah. Animal like qualities because it's so, there's a naturalness to it, even though it's man made, but they, they're, yeah, it's, it's musical. It's very, very musical. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, when I learned to, to drive stick shift, uh, the, oh, yeah, the, you learn quickly what sounds are good and what sounds, yeah. Good. Right. <laughs> well, the guy, was, yeah, <laughs> uh, the, the truck came with like a little arrow to tell you when to upshift, you know, and, oh. He was just like, you know what? Just completely ignore the dash. I just want you to focus on your speed and going. And let's see if you can hear when the difference is that you need to change it, you know? And so you'd hear it get up to a certain point, And then you're like, yeah, I think now I need to go into second or third or whatever, you know? And he's like, yeah, that's perfect. And so that's how I try to teach my wife. And I had to, you know, and things. And it's just like, you want to hear, you'll hear this little. Mm-hmm. At least too much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then I it's like. Mm-hmm. I, I was hoping that you were going to say, "Now, while you're accelerating, close your eyes and listen." To <laughs> it's just you on the open road. Don't think. Close and look. Close your eyes. <laughs> You'll be fine. You're on the Houston freeway. You're fine. Yeah. <laughs> move, okay. people, move. Yeah, weirder things have happened on Houston highways, anyway. So. Oh That's man. True. True. <laughs> yeah. No, I I remember hearing about the whistling people too. I, I want to say that's some sort of mountainous range in like the Caucasus Mountains or something like that. Yeah, that sounds uh, that sounds about right. And, and there's a very few amount of people, like less than three hundred, who actually can speak that language. Yeah. That's so freaking cool. Right. Yeah. I know what I'm Googling after this. <laughs> well, and then like they even talk about like how there's like some African tribes that used to communicate mimicking bird sounds. Oh, wow. Um, and so in order to not like 
give their presence off to warrior other tribes or anything. They would mimic bird sounds. And so then the other tribes had to learn those bird sounds and communicate. It was, it's just so cool. Holy cow. Yeah. Well, I think that the job for a cryptographer is a lot easier now. (laughs) (laughs) How do we translate the bird sound? What does that mean? Messy ants like, hold on, I've got this. Yeah. I don't know, but I've transcribed a lot. <laughs> All right. So okay. But I do enjoy a good tangent. That was, yeah. a, good that was a good tangent. That was a really good one. Uh all right, back to the Shakuhachi. So uh so is it like um it's not like what we use now for the current flutes, right? Or do you blow across it? Or does the wind actually go into the instrument? Like, um, it's a, it's a, I would probably, oh, maybe 60% of the air goes outside the flute and 20, 40% goes inside. Okay. Uh, so it's, it's definitely an over, almost like a blowing on a beer bottle is the exact, it's the almost exact same embouchure. Wow. Oh, okay. I feel like I could try this. <laughs> it's, it's a, it's, you know, for some people, like, uh, what makes it different than like the, like the beer bottle is that the beer bottle is actually, uh, it, because of the, 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 the neck is so much smaller. Mm-hmm. The embouchure is so wide on this, like the actual opening of the instrument that finding that sweet spot is actually what's difficult. So yeah. a lot of students, they, when they're, when they're blowing their first sounds, they get that like really, really airy mm-hmm. and like hear the pitch. But what they're, they're just, they're offset just so slightly by like, like a half a millimeter from that sound. And, and it's really, it's a very, very uh, fickle instrument in that way. And then you kind of, you learn, you learn where those, those sweet spots are to get the, the most rounded and, and uh, attractive sound. That reminds me a lot of, um, I, I learned the flute when I was in middle school and I remember having to explore and be like, okay, what's the best tone? And you're like, I mean, they tell you to like rotate your headpiece. So, okay, now like move back and forth. And you're always like looking for that sweet spot and how to get it to resonate. And I feel like really good flute players, you know, are always dialed into that. Like, okay, where's this the most resonant? Um, so that's really cool at that. I mean, that makes sense that it would apply. A lot of really weird like western flute players like like how they have their setup but mm-hmm. they create like the most like brilliant sound yeah and you hear you're like what what is this <laughs> uh pahud uh, emil emil pahud the the french uh, uh, flute player like he he has actually i think he like holds his flute slightly down or something i don't remember what it is but all i remember is it was either him or somebody else some flute player somewhere at some point had a weird setup and it mm-hmm. was like the most beautiful sound i'm like oh my god like that, that's like brilliant. Like head is crooked or something. Like that. But Shakachi is the same way. You can, you'll find people that have a very strange setup, but they have like just a really immaculate tone. Mm. Wow. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, I played piano and drums, so it's like I didn't have to worry about a setup except posture. So, oh, how you are know. you picking the keys and how? Oh. Are Where's the sweet spot? <laughs> <laughs> are you sure the hammer's hitting the right spot of that wire or? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, um, so maybe, um, cause I think like, like you said, you heard about, you've heard the sound of the Shakuhachi before in samurai movies and anime. Um, but what is it? Some, what's something that you really want 
listeners and people to know about the shakuhachi aside from um, the kind of the cliche kind of things about just how natural it is, uh, especially listening to like the, the Koden music, the old, old music and how expressive it can really be. I, I think that there's a, there's a lot of people who think that like when they hear, and this is actually just a more of a problem with just like, I think Zen and like a Western viewpoint is that they think meditation speak calm, tranquil, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But it's, it, the music itself, when you say like Zen music, you're trying to express life and you're trying to express everything that's, that's in a life. So one single note expresses the existence of the universe. Okay. Well, not everything in the universe is pretty. You know, there's a lot right. of thematic things that happen. So when we play, when we play the, the instrument, we have like, of course, we can play very sweet and very beautifully. But we can also make things very like uh, chaotic. And that's just as natural and as... um and as valid as the, you know, of, of a meditation as the sweet and soft long tones, um, that, that, that dynamic, you know, it's taking your energy of your body and the energy of what you're feeling and thinking at that very moment and expressing it into a sonic, uh, format. So there's like a, there's this idea in, in almost every single part of Japanese culture, this idea of shin, gyo, and soul. Shin is, uh, to put it in very, very simplistic terms, Shin means formal, gyo means semi-formal, and gyo is, or soul is informal. So, but it's, it's not necessarily that it means that, okay, if you're going to go completely informal with a piece, it means that you're improvising. It doesn't mean that at all. Shin would mean that you're copying what your teacher's doing. You're just, you're just making an, an image copy. And that character, shin, is actually the same character for the, the word shashin, which is picture, which means to, mm. you know, take a picture, right? It's a copy of the image that you're seeing in front of you. It's a reflective copy. Then the second one, gyo, is the character for to go somewhere or to, to move forward. And that means that you're making some choices. And that's the key thing is choice. Then this last one is soul, which means that you have to make a choice about everything. So instead of like, okay, your teacher might play it this way. Sometimes, like you, maybe your teacher usually plays in the soul style. So he's always making or she's always making different choices in the music. Now you're looking at the single line of music and let's say you have, let's say we have three notes. Okay. So with those three notes, which one's the most important? I can make the first two grace notes and then make the third, the third note on the beat. Or I can make the first note on the beat and then make the the last note actually uh, the, uh, the softest note. So the grace notes start on the beat. The image and the, the feeling of that of that has completely been changed. Mm-hmm. So with that, there's a lot of choice making that happens when you're wanting to express yourself. And so you go through a, a single line of music and you find how many different ways that you can play it. And then you have to say, which way is the most convincing? Which way is actually how I want to uh, to, to play this piece? And then you, you have to ask as well, after I play those fast notes, what kind of tone do I want? Do I want it to be nasty? 
Do I want it to be a slightly airy? Do I want it to be jumping all over the place? Maybe I don't even like it in that range of the flute. Maybe I want to jump up to the next octave and I, everything should be up here. With a nasty sound at the end. And that's what's actually going to help me express what I want to express. So that's, I think what for me is that there is a, there is like a, there's multiple layers to how you can play every single piece. Not, not layers, multiple approaches to every single piece. And not every piece and not every sound has to be this like uh, tranquil, calm ocean or bed of sound. Rather, it's an expression of your uh, life experiences, the things that are happening for you, what you, what you want to tell to the other person. Wow, that's beautiful. And I feel like that, that falls in line with this idea of, um, I heard this recently called toxic positivity. And I feel like, like you said, Zen has this stereotype placed on it that you're always calm and everything's always peaceful. And you're, that's just not realistic for life. Life has pain. Life has, you know, as you're going through life, you're going to have, I like to call it the shadow work. Like there's things you have to work on that aren't always beautiful and Zen. And I mean, the stereotypes Zen and pretty. And that's, yeah. I, I love that, that that's the approach you know, as you're playing it is like, no, this is a realistic, my, my realistic interpretation of life. And oh, I just love that. That's amazing. Yeah. And I don't know how that, I don't know how that, uh, the word Zen had become like synopsis with like, or like with a direct relationship to, you know, just everything being calm and, and relaxed. Mm -hmm. And I think that it might just be coming from the idea of Zazen where you're sitting in meditation or Shinkan Paza. Mm -hmm which is just sitting for the sake of sitting and, you know, allowing like the thoughts to kind of just feed through the mind and, and go. Um, mm. But, you know, that's just one. So like such a small part of, you know, of, of that practice. And there, I mean, that's just like iceberg tip, you know, right. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of sutra reading and in, in, in Zen and stuff like that too. There's lots of documents and reading and writing and um, talking and that has that goes on in their practice um so but yeah i mean it, it's everything it's it's always like uh as i'm continuing to learn and study and to figure out like what this instrument really means for me what i want to say i always like like i go into this room and there's like 20 doors and i i feel like i've opened up all 20 and i go all right this is pretty cool and then i look behind me and i go who put that door there <laughs> and so I got to open that one. Right. It goes into a room with fifty doors, and so it's when you think that you just like you feel like you're you as soon as you feel like you start to understand something about like this instrument or about like how this uh like how to transmit mm -hmm. um you know your feelings and your energy to your audience member and like you want to say something how do you transmit that musically as soon as you start to figure it out something opens up where it changes your entire view of it and you go, Oh, well I had some things right, but maybe that's not the best way. Maybe there's actually another thing here that's deeper, or maybe it's that thing, but I have to go dig deeper in that, in that idea to, you know, mm -hmm. figure out how I want to express myself, how I want to tell people something that can't be said with words. Do you think that, um, was it hard for you coming from, a uh the classical western world uh into this and thinking oh my god that's like an endless amount of options it seems daunting um at first it's really um i would say the biggest challenge is figuring out what you can and can't do and mm -hmm. the real answer is there's really nothing you can't do 
And I, I think that's what's probably the most like overbearing. Like, for example, like let's say we're gonna play Mozart, which is not which is not a bad comparison considering that the music is about from the same time period. Um, some some pieces older, some pieces newer. And in the case for Mozart, it's written in a style where you have to follow things just to the T, right? Mm-hmm. And um, like nowadays, it, it was really interesting. I heard. I showed my um, a friend of mine a recording of uh, Heinrich Schering playing Mozart, and he he's a professional violin player. He goes, "Oh my God, no one would play Mozart like that today." And I, was, I found that so interesting because it's like it's really changed that much. And it's like how much has it changed since Mozart's time? Where people are like, "This is the way to play Mozart," and it's actually like completely not the way to play it at all. <laughs> right. Yeah. I'm thinking like there's there's that sort of stigma or not not stigma. There's like that way of like this is how we do things today in Western music. This is, the, this is our standard. And in Japanese music, there's just so many different schools and there's so many different ways of doing things. And there's, there's so many different pieces with the same name that express the same thing. And uh, no one person plays it the same. Mm. Oh, I love it. So I think that's what can get really confusing is like, even for myself, like if there's still like, I, I will I will play a piece that I like I have played for ten years and I'll go I I feel like I I have an understanding of this piece and then I find another version of the piece that looks nothing like the one that I I have and I've been working on that this entire time and I go wow this is this is different I think I actually like this one more and you know digging into that the way that people have played it the way that people approach it the you know the the thoughts about it the technical approach it, it's it's just an endless thing and it doesn't help that. There's like almost no information. It's so hard to get any information about pieces of music, except for like the word of mouth from people like that have been playing. It's like the masters and uh, of uh, that been have been playing this since they were a kid. Well, they'll have they'll have a story about it, but there's no like way to say like that's true. And, and right. actually, what's really interesting is I have a lot of CD like a, a um like the the pocket inserts right where it says like this is where this piece is from and what's really interesting is i will read about the same piece from five different artists and they all say it comes from five different locations of japan (laughs) (laughs) and and i and i listen to the recordings i'm like oh no it's no doubt it's the same piece but Mm -hmm. they're saying it's from it's it's really that's i think it's really fascinating yeah yeah well and to think like it can have that much of a meaning to share like kind of in, indisputably like undisputably like oh it's from here and then to have like four other people with that same conviction like i i just think that's really like in cool. some pieces are much more like are the, some pieces have a lot of history about them that where it's much more clear and laid out and mm-hmm. um you know because it's been a part of a school lineage for hundreds of years where like other pieces i i just it's hard to it's hard to say what's like fact from fantasy with a lot of pieces too. It's, I think it's the same thing with like uh, Western composers too. Like some, there are three different types of composers. There's the one who's like very logical and everybody knows what they're doing. They didn't don't need to say anything. There's the composer who sounds like they're extraordinarily, you know, like, like it's, it's divine given and they, but they tell everybody their logical like processes. And then there's the last composer who, seems like it's divine writing and they say it's divine writing and they don't tell us what our, 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 their process is. And then we're left with the mystery of how do they come up with that? It kind of seems like that sort of, like that sort of way with a lot of the Japanese music where 
a lot of it is is supposed to be divinely inspired. Like the, the piece that's sitting in front of me right now is called Ajikan, which is a esoteric practice in, uh, or in, it's from esoteric Buddhism, Shingonshu, that this idea of Ajikan, you view the character Ah in your mind, which is the birth of everything. And then you, you view that in the mind's eye and then you, you sing that and you, and you play that, play that music. And so you're imagining this, this idea through, um, you know, through playing. So how did this piece come about? Who wrote it? When was it written? Where was it written? Who is the one, who are the type of people who played it? Like all those sort of questions are like really difficult to ask. And, uh, from my, what my teacher told me is that a lot of the, almost all of the temples, um, in, in Japan that were related to this, this instrument, a lot of them were burned down. And mm. so most wow. of the documentation just aren't there. It's just, it, it's all, it's basically like, it, it looks from, from like the outside, like when you hear like, oh, all the temples are burned down, almost all the documents are gone. It's like, okay, well, dead end is what it feels yeah. like. Right. Yeah. So, but there's been a lot of like research done and, and stuff and, but it's, it's really, it's a really confusing, difficult world of, of whatever. So what I, what I tend to do now is I just create, I'm trying to create, what does it mean for me? So when I, I don't care who wrote it. I don't care when it was written or, or where it was written. What I care about is what is the message about this piece? This piece has something that it wants to say. And, and now I have to figure out what is that piece? What does this piece want to say? And that's from, you know, studying with different people and they say, this is my interpretation. This is my interpretation. This is what I've heard. This is what I've heard. Mm-hmm. Taking that information. And then how do I want to take that? And how am I going to create this, uh, this feeling or this expression of this music and then deliver that to my audience member? I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we spoke to another gentleman who's from Japan and he, you, you might know him, Satori Shimizu. I do know him. He's great. Yeah. And he talked to us about the show. Now, have you, does the show and the Shakuhachi ever perform together or? Um, okay. So from what I have read in a, uh, there's a book about shakachi and how it was used in gagaku which is uh, where show is primarily used um and they were saying that sh- that shakachi might actually have might have been a tuning instrument so oh. it would actually be the starting pitch so i think that would be where they would probably play together um however i've actually played with a show player in here in japan and so yeah it's definitely i mean it works we can play together and, and make sounds <laughs> but that's cool uh, uh, outside of like that example of it being a tuning pitch, I don't know of any like traditional pieces that have the two instruments um, together. Yeah, that's really cool. I just I wondered how the sounds would work together. Um, you know, with the 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 show being pretty much just like a mouth organ, you know, and all the harmonics that it can make. So. Yeah, the, the overtones clash really beautifully with the shakachi's overtones. Oh, cool, cool. Ah, that's cool. Yeah, that is really cool. So, did you have you ever collaborated with someone just like who might be like the antithesis of a shakuhachi, like electric guitar or? Um, yes, I I've done um a fair bit amount of um electronic music with shakuhachi. Oh, cool. So, like the most like nature driven instrument I can think of is shakuhachi, and then mixing it with all electronics. Um, yeah, oh, what a contrast. Yeah, his name is his name is Chapman Welch, and uh, he wrote a piece called Antenna for uh, Shakachi and Electronics, and it actually it's a really beautiful piece. I I uh, I had no idea what it was going to be, 
because he just gave me the notes. And he said, just learn the notes and I'll, uh, and then come in the studio and play and then you'll know what it sounds like. So <laughs> I, I, I was just playing everything and I started to realize that as I'm recording with it, I'm actually collaborating. I'm actually speaking with the electronics by what notes I play. And so it ended up being a really cool piece. That's really cool. That's awesome. Yeah. And, and we played it live too. So he actually had to manipulate the sounds and change the keys and like, change the settings and stuff like that. Wow. wow. I'm trying to think of like the brain power it would take to pull off a live performance. Oh, oh I'm I really amazed at like electronic artists. People like joke that they're just like sitting and t- touching knobs. And I'm like, they're thinking of so many things. You back off. They're doing the hard work just because they're not waving their arms. Like, <laughs> there's a lot going on. <laughs> there's a lot going on. And I, um, I, I, where my, my big respect for electronic music came after I took the course at Cleveland Institute of Music with Stephen Cohn, Dr. or uh, Professor Stephen Cohn. He, uh, we, we were learning about MIDI controls and we were developing our own sounds through MIDI, like 16 bit or something like that or 32 bit. Wow. And, uh, <laughs> He said, okay, so you guys, you guys made yourself like, uh, you know, your 30, your 30 second piece, uh, for with MIDI. Now what we're going to do is I'm going to show you how they used to do it back in the day where they used to use tape, right? They would make the yeah, sound. They'd splice it and cut it. And, and then it. he showed us this like 35 or no, this 15 second clip of all these like beautiful waves of sound. And we're just like, Oh my God, that must have taken so much time. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we knew like there's like a whole level of art behind it that we use. Like, yeah, yeah. We really, really, really go with that. Yeah, music yeah. content is so fascinating. I love studying that kind of stuff. And it's like, even if it sounds super weird, like I remember my first impression was like, what the hell is this? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's like the more you can dive into it and like, see their process i feel like that amps up the enjoyment of like oh that's what that produced or like that's really cool they figured out that sound and especially like the appreciation for like oh my god they used to actually cut and splice and tape together the tape and then run it through and then like oh it's so it's fun (laughs) that's a cool history yeah that's really cool it's i like the idea of having the super traditional yeah, you know, like you said, this like nature instrument and then this, you know, metal, uh, sound being created, joining together to create this music. That's really such a cool idea. So it was a really cool project. Yeah, I sure it was. Well, thank you so much, Sean, for being here. It's so great to talk to you about Shakuhachi and 
uh, it's inspiring, uh, to, you know, kind of follow that passion and, uh, and where it's leading you. And it's very, it's, it's so cool. And then the instrument is so amazing. So thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for having me. And, you know, it's, it's tough to, to put into words stuff like this, but, you know, it's always fun to just, you know, sit around and let the tangents go to interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, definitely, definitely. Our tangents went all sorts of places today. <laughs> I enjoyed this way too much, and now I have so many things to Google and follow up on, especially the whistle people. <laughs> the whistle people. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, thank you so much, Sean, and yeah, thanks for sitting down with us today. All right, have a good one, guys. Thanks for listening to the Sounds of the World podcast. We hope you enjoyed the episode. There are links to everything in the episode description and also on our website. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Sounds of the World. To show support for Sounds of the World podcast, please join our Patreon, where you can have access to our after-party discussions with guests, discounted merchandise, and even more. If you have any questions, answers, or episode suggestions, please email us at Sounds of the world podcast at gmail.com. Well, Bill, I think I'm going to go have a beer now. Hey, there you go. <laughs> <laughs>